It's Midday Magazine for Friday, August 25th. I'm Hannah Floor. Petersburg's Assembly is considering whether to request control of a state-owned seaplane dock in need of repair. As KFSK's Thomas Copeland reports, that's prompting questions about whether the process for transferring ownership to local authorities is working the way it should. Scott Newman runs Petersburg Flying Service. You can pick out his plane because of its distinctive blue and gold stripes. Today, there's not a speck of dirt on it. I spend an hour every day at the end of the day cleaning the plane and getting it ready for the next day. It doesn't matter what you have, whether it's a boat, an airplane, or a dock. You have to maintain it. And if you don't maintain things in this country, nature's going to take it back. (laughs) That's just the way it is. And that's exactly what's happening to the seaplane float where Newman keeps his vehicle. The entire dock is, is sinking. I mean, it's just, it's crumbling. It's mushy. You can see this particular board right here. Like, someone's going to step on that and put their foot all the way through it. As well as danger underfoot, there's trouble from above too. Newman says the zinc collars on the dock's 20-foot pilings haven't been maintained, so salt water is eating away at the steel. There was one over there that the neighbor had, and it actually fell. Oh, okay, so hold on. So I don't a, know a steel piling was... fell as a result of the it water fell. just corroding it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's pretty dangerous, right? To have a piling fall over? Yeah, that's like having a steel tree fall on you. <laughs> Newman is an assembly member here in Petersburg, and the state of the seaplane float was raised at a recent assembly meeting. You see, Petersburg Borough actually doesn't own the seaplane float. The State Department of Transportation owns it, and the borough says it just isn't a priority for the state. So if they won't fix it, the borough could request that ownership of the seaplane float be transferred from the state to the borough. But that process isn't straightforward. Papke's Landing is a boat dock about 11 miles out of town. It's used by scores of residents and visitors, especially those coming from Cupernoff Island. This morning, Ken Howard is one of them. He's been relying on this dock to get into town for 20 years. This facility is extremely important to us because it's our connection to Petersburg. That connection was first built after World War II and it hasn't fared well down the years. Well, it's broken half (laughs) because the float goes aground and the ground is not level. It drops off there. Oh, so when the tide goes down, the whole thing kind of snaps a bit, does it? Yes, it's... It's pretty pathetic, yeah. Problems at Papke's is old news in Petersburg. Howard and many others have been raising it for years, just waiting for the day that somebody gets injured on the dock. In February, the borough assembly finally requested that Papke's landing be transferred from the state to the borough. Now, the focus here is the tidelands and uplands around the dock, owned by the State Department of Natural Resources, or DNR. In his office in town, borough manager Steve Giesbrecht pulls out a list detailing all the steps involved in that process. And fair warning, it's lengthy. So we have a 20-day agency comment period, and that goes into the preliminary decision. That takes over a year, to use their exact language. There's a 30-day public notice that has to occur, and a final findings are drafted. That final findings is then also published again for a 20-day appeal process. We have to have it surveyed and appraised. All that's combined into a final documentation that's sent to the borough, and then it has to go in front of our assembly. It's all pretty simple, really, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah, of course, right. All in all, DNR says this process could take up to four years. Some of its users don't think PAPKEYS will even last that long. Now the seaplane float, that's owned by the State Department of Transportation. And they say their typical timeline here is much faster. 
But Giesbrecht says no matter which department, transferring ownership from the state will need to become a smoother process. Come to the table ready to hand me over the deed and say, we're not going to put you through two years of paperwork. It's, it's ridiculous. If the state's not going to pay for this stuff, then let us do it. Because, of course, once a property is handed over, the borough is on the hook for repair and maintenance with its own money. And cash just isn't flowing into Alaska like it used to. Well, when the price of oil was over $100 a barrel, the state had a ton of money. The price of oil is not at over $100 anymore. You know, we all get used to it. I mean, you know, I got used to it when my parents paid for everything when I lived at home. And then it was a bit of a transition when I had to pay for it myself. Now, the Assembly here hasn't reached a decision on whether they even want to ask for ownership of the seaplane float. Assemblymember Scott Newman says it isn't about to fall into the ocean, but its condition will only get worse. Five years from now, ten years, especially ten years from now, I think it'll be a safety issue. Getting old, things are starting to sag. (laughs) And given how long it might take if the borough does request ownership, they'll need to get thinking about where they'll find the money to pay for it. In Petersburg, I'm Thomas Copeland. Wildlife troopers charged a homer man this week with four counts of illegal fishing in Alaska waters. Bernardo Chermanov is facing up to $4,500 in fines. Jeremy Baum is the wildlife, Alaska wildlife trooper based in Alaska. He says Chermanov was using commercial fishing gear in an exclusively subsistence fishing area. Chermanov was seen catching salmon with a commercial drift gillnet aboard the 32-foot fishing vessel Foreigner in mid-July in Unalaska's Reese Bay, a very popular subsistence area where locals harvest mostly red salmon. Albert Department of Fish and Game in NOAA boarded the boat the next day, and there were uh, 87 fish seized off that vessel. Only residents can participate in subsistence fisheries, and they have to have permits to fish. Reese Bay is about 18 miles by boat from Unalaska. It's best known for its midsummer sockeye, or red, salmon run. Baum says Chermanov was cited for not having a subsistence permit to participate in that fishery, for unlawful possession of subsistence fish, for operating a subsistence fishing net that was longer than the legal maximum length, and for failing to report commercially caught fish on his fish ticket. At the time of the boarding, and according to uh, Mr. Termoff, uh, some of the fish that were on board were from his subsistence catch in Reese Bay. But there was also additional fish he claimed on board his vessel that were commercial caught. Those fish uh, were not recorded on a fish ticket um, as he's required to do. Chermanov has a court date scheduled at the Unalaska Courthouse for late September. He faces up to $4,500 in fines and for forfeiture of the 87 fish that were seized. The U.S. Attorney General experienced what Alaska natives in remote villages experience all the time on Tuesday. Merritt Garland got weathered out of a flight to Huslia, a tiny community on the Koyukuk River in interior Alaska. Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, who traveled with Garland, says she's not in the habit of wishing visitors to Alaska bad weather. But it was a reminder that when something happens, when there is a tragedy or a threat or something that requires public safety intervention in a community that is not accessible and weather shuts in, there is no plan B. Rain and strong winds canceled Garland's flight to Huslia, which is only accessible by air and water. Garland says the challenges of Alaska weather 
was not something he could have fully appreciated without experiencing it. We had a United States Marshals plane, we had a United States Air Force plane, and still, with the weather, we weren't able to get there. I can't imagine what would happen in the circumstance if there was a, an emergency. Carlin was able to meet with tribal leaders in Galena, another interior Alaska community. He also attended a roundtable hosted by the Alaska Federation for Natives in Anchorage, where he announced $22 million in funding for the Alaska Native Justice Center. That helps tribes improve their public safety and justice systems. The meeting was closed to the media, but Michelle Demert, a longtime tribal court judge, says there was a lot at stake for Alaska Natives who experienced some of the highest rates of violence in the country. Alaska tribes have not gotten the same resources across the board when it comes to essential governmental services, and it's time for them to pony up. Demert is the Not Invisible Commissioner of the University of Alaska Fairbanks Tribal Governance Program. She called the meeting groundbreaking because Garland acknowledged Alaska tribes as democratic institutions, their need for support, and their importance to the nation. The Skagway Borough Assembly postponed a decision on what to do with land that was the site of a boarding school for Indigenous children. The Skagway Traditional Council withdrew its engagement from the process, citing undue stress to its members. Alain Despernil has more. The Pius X Boarding School for Native Children opened in Skagway in 1932. Jamie Bricker is the president of the Skagway Traditional Council. There's certainly documented evidence of abuse at the school, and it's certainly a hard history to revisit. The Catholic Church operated the school until 1959. Bricker says tribal members alive today attended the school as youth. Boarding schools are now widely seen as a tool settlers used to eradicate indigenous cultures. In 2008, the Canadian government issued a formal apology to attendees at its residential schools. In the U.S., a federal effort is underway to find out what happened in the institutions. In Skagway, archaeologists have just finished scanning the ground of the former school for evidence of death among the student body. None has emerged so far. The land on which the boarding school sat was purchased by the municipality of Skagway for $1.7 million a decade ago. The municipality is now operating an RV park at this location and is still making payments to the Catholic Church. Two years ago, the Skagway Traditional Council wrote a letter to Skagway's Borough Assembly expressing interest in taking ownership of some of the land. They wanted to honor and recognize the experience of the people who attended the school. Some supported returning the land. Earlier this year, an assembly member drafted a resolution seeking to return half of the RV park land to the traditional council. Assembly member Deb Potter saw the resolution peter out. The finance committee did discuss it, but there really was no movement on that at all. The assembly has expressed a will to recognize the tribe's claim and return a smaller parcel. But President Bricker says the conversation around returning land to the tribe has been contentious and unfruitful. There really hasn't been any meaningful progress towards that concept. Bricker says revisiting memories associated with the school has been painful for tribal members. The Pius X mission history has been emotional for our tribal members. And um, I think it's really taken a toll to revisit that and 
at this point in time, it just seemed like a good idea for the health of our people to step away from this. Recently, the council wrote a letter to the assembly and expressed its intention to withdraw from engaging the municipality on the issue. In the letter, the tribe asked that one parcel be set aside for the creation of a memorial that will, quote, heal the land for future users, unbury and recognize its existence as part of Skagway's history, and give boarding school attendees and descendants time to grieve from trauma and show that Skagway cares, end quote. Assemblymember Sam Bass recently brought a resolution for discussion. It would subdivide the land into 24 lots. One parcel would be offered to the traditional council for setting up the memorial. The others would be for housing. Mayor Andrew Kermada says the municipality has to be careful when it sells the lots. I know that part of the reason we have a housing shortage is the fact that so much of our lots are owned by landowners in town who own 10 properties, 12 properties, 20 properties, whatever it is. Kramata says he fears the same landowners would buy the land at the RV park, the lots would sit empty, and the young families that seek to establish themselves in Skagway would miss out on the opportunity. To make matters worse, the utilities are in disrepair. Fixing them will cost millions of dollars, according to borough manager Brad Ryan. Assemblymember Potter says there is a strong case for returning the land to the local tribe. She points to a U.S. statute addressing the disposal of mission land that says it should go back to, quote, the Indian owners. According to this federal statute, Potter says, the land should have been returned to the tribe in 1959 when the school closed. During a phone call to the Catholic Diocese of Juneau, the vicar general said he was not aware of the statute. Potter says she wants to use her position on the assembly to advocate for returning some land. You also have to think about there's public opinion and then there's doing the right thing. There's obviously not a large native population in Skagway, so they need allies to be advocating for doing the right thing. Breaker, with the traditional council, says regardless of who owns the land, uncovering the history of the school is a priority. She says their staff were able to unearth 2,000 pages of documents related to the school in an archive in British Columbia. As of right now, there's no concise record of attendance at that school. There's no record of who showed up at the doorstep, who left it, and how. And that's concerning to me. We're in the process of trying to delve through it and determine you know, what these new pieces of documentation mean, trying to rebuild that history, and that's the really important part to us. The Assembly voted to postpone any decision on land disposal until members can further examine the land title and read through the results of the archaeological study. For KHNS, I'm Alan de Prevenil. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.